0: So we're continuing our series through the Gospels, through sort of a chronological walk uh, through Jesus' life, and we get to a passage where Jesus is asked about divorce and remarriage theology, and which is usually not a friendly thing to hear for a lot of people who are interested in Christianity, and I hope today is different for you. Sometimes the church can be a very difficult place to be. Because it's supposed to be a place of forgiveness and hope, it's supposed to be a place where grace flows to everybody, it's supposed to be a constant reminder that the past is behind us, we are new creations in Christ, no matter what we've done, no matter what we will do and face today, the church is to be a place of hope and grace. But there are situations that make life difficult for people as it relates to the church. Sometimes God has said certain things that we struggle with because God might take a very clear position on it, but it might happen to be an area of our human weakness. And so we're going to struggle with God's standard because no matter what we want to do, his standard might be clear, and we've got perhaps a weakness in that specific area, and so the church is always going to be a little bit difficult to us, for us. And, and I think that in evangelical Christianity, that's probably the way a lot of people in the LGBTQ community feel, because we feel that when it comes to biblical sexuality, God is clear. Most people don't struggle with it, but if you do struggle with it, the church is going to be difficult at times. Sometimes we struggle with things because God's position is not so clear, and that's what I want to talk about today. God is not confused. He knows what he's doing. He has even spoken to the issue in the scriptures But we as scholars and pastors and Christian leaders might have a hard time figuring out his position on it. He's spoken, but we're having a hard time figuring out what exactly he said. But because we're Christians and we believe we're supposed to figure it out, it doesn't stop the church from taking a hard and fast position because we believe we're supposed to take a position on ethical issues that God talks about, but sometimes it's not as easy to figure them out as we think. Sometimes when we get the wrong position, we're pretty judgmental about it. And enter the divorce and remarriage topic in Christianity. And here's the problem. There are five to six key passages on this subject, and they do not all seem to agree with each other. Now, that could mean that God is confused. I'm going to rule that one out right away. It could mean, and this is a view, that God is giving us what we call progressive revelation. And what that means is that we're getting new and changing information over time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Peter, could you pull me back up here just a touch? I'm getting some feedback. So progressive revelation, here's a good example. The the theology of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree that in the New Testament, we have much more information about the theology of the Holy Spirit than we have in the Old Testament? We get a lot more new information, and also we have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than Old Testament believers had. We're indwelt and have some heightened sense of God's presence in us in a way that Old Testament believers didn't have. Jesus predicted that. It happens in the book of Acts. Acts or just before in this transition to the church. And so we've got progressive revelation about the Holy Spirit. That's what we call it. We get new information over time from God. Another illustration would be the theology of the afterlife. In the Old Testament, there's very little information about heaven and hell. But in the New Testament, there's all kinds of information. That is called progressive revelation. So the issue is, is God giving us progressive revelation as it relates to divorce and remarriage theology where he's, in a sense, changing some of it over time? So either God is confused, number one. Hope you don't pick that box. Number two, we're getting progressive revelation. Or number three, we have failed to grasp as the church, as scholars, how these various passages can be collectively interpreted. We've just done a bad job with the passages in the Bible. Nothing has changed, God's view has stayed the same, we just struggle to integrate them and to interpret them accurately. That is my position. I believe the church has gotten this wrong. Badly wrong. I believe we have badly interpreted the scriptures. I believe we have made men and women stay in terrible marriages at times. I believe we have forbidden legitimate remarriages through faulty interpretations of scripture. And I've been a part of it. I'm probably going to disagree with this church's historic position, There is a cross with wood at its base out back for me after the service. And I want to work through this issue with you today. I'm going to cover most of the basics. I'm not going to answer every question. And here's the scary part. I might be wrong. I don't think I am, but I might be wrong. This is the hardest ethical subject that I am aware of to understand in the Scriptures. The hardest, and there's no close second place. I want to read with you Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. If you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you. It's going to be get to the New Testament about three-quarters of the way back. It's going to start over with one again in the numbering. It's on page 15, pages 15 and 16, book of Matthew Beginning in verse 1 on chapter 19. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, That sounds like they're saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason at all? If you understand Jewish culture, what they're basically asking is the any reason divorce, it's a technical term, is the any reason or any cause divorce lawful? I'll explain that in a few moments. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away, as if God commanded divorce? And then he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and married as another woman commits adultery. Well, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. We'll stop there. Four simple points, and then a few applications. First, Jesus confronts the divorce and remarriage deconstructionists of his day. Now this passage does not begin with Jesus wanting to dive into the subject. He is being put to the test on a hotly debated theological issue in his time. This is actually an attempt, you see in the first verse or two there, it's an attempt to trick Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus into a big debate about something that scholars of his day hotly debated. And the Pharisees, who are now Jesus' enemies, they've now decided this is not a good guy, he's not going to be safe for our movement, he's too critical of us, in fact, we'd like to string him up, we'd like to get him on a cross... They're now thinking that if we get Jesus in this divorce and remarriage debate, he's going to be in trouble with half the crowd no matter what he says because the theology of their day was so divided on this subject, much like me in the next 30 minutes here they were trying to do to Jesus. So they pose a question that would have been the fastest way to Jesus' theology on the subject. And here's what they say in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, again, that question to you sounds like, you know, what are the reasons you can divorce your wife? That's not what they're asking. That was a technical term called the any cause or any reason divorce. It had become very popular in their day. Now, you're going to put up on on the screen, and I want you to see these on the screen so I can kind of walk through them with you. These are the two verses that come from the Old Testament law. They're not the only verses in the Old Testament about divorce, they're the two verses that are in the legal code about legitimate divorce remarriage situations. Exodus 21.10, Deuteronomy 24.1. Now stay with me, we're doing a college course today, but this is really relevant to our culture as a church and how we treat people going through difficulty in their lives. Exodus 21.10, Deuteronomy 24.1, these are in legal context, so this is the legal code for Israel. Exodus, as you recall, is the first giving of the law. This is when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he gave them the Ten Commandments and then God gave them all sorts of other rules for their civil and religious life. So this occurs actually right after the Ten Commandments, probably on the same page in your Bible or the next page. And it describes this first verse is talking about a scenario where a wealthy man has a son who marries a servant girl. And by that, I mean slave girl. And there are rules about how to treat slaves. Don't think of the North American experimentation with slavery. It's not like this. This was sort of a, if you're impoverished and you go into slavery, the, the owner would take care of you, take care of your family. It wasn't the kind of abuse of slavery we see in the world today, but still it was slavery. But it was sort of a, not as bad as what we're used to thinking about. So this was much more of a protective environment. And in this culture, in this story, Moses is describing a situation where a wealthy man has a son who falls in love with the servant girl on their ranch. And he marries her. And in this passage, is saying that if something happens in this relationship where this this man decides he wants to marry somebody else, she still has certain rights legally, even as a servant girl. So even a servant girl has rights to food, clothing, and love. The wife took care of food and clothing. The husband provided. Both were responsible for emotional support in the marriage. Both were responsible for the sexual bed. In fact, in the passage we have here, it's interpreted conjugal rights. In some passages, that just says love. This one says conjugal rights. It's clearly talking about sex as a foundation for marriage. This was in the marriage contract in ancient documents. Exodus 21 says, if this man marries somebody else and in turn stops providing food, clothing, and conjugal rights to this slave girl, this is going to be considered sort of an abandonment divorce. A neglect divorce. So you have this foundational issue on the same page as the Ten Commandments about marriage contract, marriage expectations in the ancient world. And if those things are not provided in the marriage, the contract becomes null and void. You're not like winning the lottery if you marry somebody who's still willing to sleep with you 20 or 25 years later. And that was not meant to be funny. It was an expectation in the marriage that you took care of each other in every way or you're violating the marriage contract. The vows matter. Now interestingly, these words, food, clothing, and love, kind of become in Christian and Jewish ceremonies later on sort of the, um, you know, the, the kind of things we repeat in our vows. We just say it a little differently along with a vow of sexual faithfulness. It's sort of the foundation of them. Love, honor, keep, that sort of thing. Now, here's a confession from me as a pastor. I never even heard of that passage until about 12 years ago. Because most of the theology in the Western church completely ignores that passage in the Old Testament. In fact, David Instone Brewer has written multiple books on this. He's done foundational work on divorce and remarriage theology. He went and studied all the rabbis of Jesus' day to understand the context behind this debate. And he has really done an incredible job. Not everyone agrees with him. There are some people who would like to silence him, but he has done a phenomenal job, incredible scholarship at bringing this to light. This was foundational in Jewish culture, in marriage law. Based on this passage, I personally believe that if my daughter marries an addictive gambler who is squandering away their paychecks and their wealth, that that is grounds for divorce based on this passage I believe if my daughter marries somebody who is physically abusive to her that is grounds for divorce based on this passage if my daughter marries somebody or if my son marries somebody who decides that a sexless marriage is okay that is grounds for divorce and I realize you've not heard that in an evangelical pulpit probably before Marriage is not a matter of just getting lucky and deciding you know, that you finally found somebody who's gonna actually do what you want them to do for the rest of your life, and they're gonna sort of participate in the marriage. When a person stops participating in the marriage, they're stopping fulfilling the contract rights that are part of the marriage. In Jesus' day, this would have been the normal passage used for divorce. A woman would make an appeal to a court a town court, based on the way her husband was treating her, the man had to write a certificate of divorce. Now, here's another thing I'm going to attack in evangelical theology. Do you know why a man had to write a certificate of divorce? Why do you think? So that, of course, she could remarry. So for those of you who want to say, well, I guess sometimes divorce is okay, but never remarriage, deal with God on this. God cared about women in this situation. And the Bible is usually put in a situation where women suffer. They suffer economically because of divorce. This allowed a woman in the Old Testament to prove her eligibility to remarry because if she was legitimately divorced, she obviously had the right under Jewish law to remarry because otherwise she would face incredible economic hardship and often have to resort to prostitution or begging. So God protected women in the legal code. If the marriage wasn't working because she wasn't being provided for as far as food, clothing, conjugal rights, she could seek a divorce so she could marry somebody else. Forgive me, this was you know not exactly an egalitarian society, but she could marry somebody else who would take care of her. And God protected women in that system. The whole system was set up to protect women legally so they could move on and survive. 40 years later, the re-giving of the law. Deuteronomy means deutero, second, namas, law, second giving of the law. A little clarification on the sexual issue. Moses says when a man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that he, uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her away from his house. Okay, so here's what the debate is about. It's about this verse. The context describes a situation where a marriage has taken place and then the husband discovers some knowledge of indecency or infidelity. In the Greek, or it should say in the Hebrew, the phrase says, a thing of nakedness. Okay, those four words. A thing of nakedness, or really two words. A thing of nakedness. Two schools of rabbis looked at this phrase. Stay with me. College class here, stay with me. Two schools of rabbis. The Shamites looked at this passage and they were the conservatives of the day. And they said, well, a thing of nakedness, that's obviously talking about some sort of adultery or something discovered about the woman that meant the husband couldn't trust her sexually. That's a thing of nakedness. So the Shamites were the conservatives and said, this seems to be uh, that something has happened sexually, there's no longer a one flesh union, he can't trust her, divorce is legitimate in that situation. The Hillelites, and you've got to love these guys. These were the theological liberals of the day. These were the deconstructionists of the day. These guys were great. They just made stuff up. They just made stuff up, rewrote God's word. They could do whatever they wanted. And of course they were popular. They were the in dudes. They are like the cool rabbis. Here's what they said. A thing of nakedness, or some indecency there, some indecency would be actually four words, a thing of nakedness. Here's what the Hillelites said. Okay, nakedness must refer to some sort of infidelity, but a thing would be like a secondary cause then. So it could be a thing, or it could be nakedness. It could be a thing like some other cause, or it could be adultery. So the Hillelites actually took that verse, and they twisted it to create two bases, For divorce in Deuteronomy? Adultery or a cause, a thing. In other words, anything. In other words, an any cause or any reason divorce. Voila. You can now leave your wife for any reason. And that's the question the Pharisees test them with. Is the any cause divorce, the anything divorce legal or lawful? That's what's going on in the passage. Now think about this. That divorce was becoming extremely popular. In fact, if you read the writings of the Hillelites on this, wrinkles that she didn't have 20 years ago could be a cause for divorce. You can't make this stuff up. These dudes were incredibly funny. Bad cooking was a reason for divorce. Who among us would have made it through the first two years of marriage? Loudness, if you could hear your wife like outside or through the next house. I mean, I'm not making this up. They talk about this stuff. And this was so simple, so easy to get a divorce, that this reason, this any cause divorce was replacing all of the other divorces. In other words, when a, when a man came to the town council or a woman came to the town council, it's like, hey, I just want the any cause divorce based on Deuteronomy 24, the Hillelite interpretation, the a thing, the a cause divorce, not adultery, not abandonment. I just want that divorce, the any cause divorce. Now the reasons don't matter anymore because basically what the Hillelites are saying is if you don't like your spouse, and who among us have not had moments where we didn't like our spouse? If you don't like your spouse for any reason, it's all right. You can go, you know, we got some liberal rabbis here, they'll let you off the hook. You got the any cause divorce. The reasons don't matter. So the Hillelites had deconstructed God's text, misinterpreted God quite intentionally, and they created a theological nightmare. Marriage has been devalued. The any cause divorce lacked God's authority, lacked marriage's intent. And so they got rid of basically any rules that kept people together in marriage. All right, you understand what I'm saying so far? You look a little confused or you don't like me? I'm gonna assume it's confusion. All right, second, Jesus reaffirms God's creation, design, and intention. So he's walking into this debate where basically they're saying, hey, can people just get divorced for any cause, any reason? And so what he's doing here is he's pushing back and saying, okay, let's look at God's original design here. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They'll become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, man shouldn't separate. So Jesus is quoting Genesis Quoting the creation story, and he's describing God's ideal, his creation plan, which is obviously everyone would agree with this one man, one woman, with no other sexual experiences, a one flesh union. And by that, I'm not just talking about after you walk down the aisle. This means no dating sexual experiences, this means there's one person in your life that's turned you on. We might have to dub that out. That's what God wants. He doesn't want you know twelve years of singleness with all sorts of questionable relationships, and finally you settle down with somebody. God wants purity. His ideal is one man and one woman for life. That was his plan. And in most of history, people got married pretty young. It was more realistic. So he's simply reminding them that their very casual attitudes about marriage are new. Those are not historic. God has always wanted one man and one woman for life. And when we ignore God's ultimate plan, that has consequences to God's design, which moves right into his next point. Redrawing God's standards has moral consequences, and that's when he describes them. They said to him, well, why did Moses command? In other words, like, Moses told us to get divorced when we're not happy. Oh my goodness, these guys are something. Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses didn't command. He permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. no. Let's walk through exactly what's going on here and what's not going on here. This is where Jesus starts dropping word bombs in the debate. And here are the points he's making, and here are the points he's not making. Divorce was never commanded, he said. It was permitted because we're human, it was never God's idea. But he's also saying when we use the any cause divorce, we ignore God's actual legitimate standard because the any cause divorce in Deuteronomy 24 is just the Hillelites' interpretation. So Jesus is here agreeing with the Shamites. that Deuteronomy 24 is about unfaithfulness alone. He's saying if you divorce your wife for any reason other than unfaithfulness and you marry somebody else, you're kind of committing adultery in a sense. You're not living in adultery, but the first remarriage is an act of adultery because, because you're still supposed to be married to your first spouse, is his point. His point is if you ignore God's legitimate standards, then in a sense... You're not really divorced when you leave your spouse if you're just using the any-cause divorce. And therefore, your subsequent remarriage has a tinge of adultery to it because your divorce wasn't legitimate. Therefore, your remarriage isn't legitimate, and that's kind of his point. But here's the problem. Many believe, the majority of the church believes, that here Jesus narrowed legitimate divorce and remarriage to adultery only I do not believe that here's the problem Jesus is addressing a very specific debate about Genesis chapter or Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 this any cause divorce this misinterpretation he never addresses Exodus 21 He doesn't address what most divorce and remarriages were based on before then, which is this abandonment neglect issue in Exodus 21. That's the same page as the Ten Commandments. That hasn't been touched. And Paul actually later affirms the theology of Exodus 21 when he says if you're abandoned, if you're a believer, abandoned by a non-believer, you're free to go. So how can Jesus narrow it and then Paul expand it again? It doesn't make any sense. This decision about how we view this, made by scholars and pastors, has left millions of people with legitimate rights to move on, laden with guilt and shame if they try to go to a church. What about Mark 10, 11 and 12? Here's another great test to this. Look at this one. This is actually the same situation quoted by a different apostle. Now, now explain this to me. All right? Like I'm a fifth grader. Explain this to me. How Jesus can be quoted by Mark compared to Matthew? (laughs) Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. What's missing? The exception clause is completely missing from Mark's gospel. I want you to think about that. Isn't that kind of a big deal? So now this would probably be, I'm guessing this would be the Catholic Church's position where there's no divorce, no remarriage, therefore you have annulment as a way to get around that. But I'm assuming their basic theology would come from here. So if you just want to be really conservative and legalistic on this, just stick with Mark and ignore Matthew. In fact, some people do. How do we explain the difference between Matthew and Mark when they're actually quoting the same sermon? Well, some would say it's an abbreviated text. And everyone knew the full text, so they don't have to put it in there. I have a problem with that, since Mark's letter went to other people than Matthew's letter went to. So they would only get this until the church pulled it all together into the New Testament. I would say maybe there's a slightly different point being made by Mark. And I would agree with this, and I think you would too, and that's this. All remarriage, including legitimate remarriages, have the tinge of adultery because we're breaking God's original design, one man, one woman, for life. So in a sense, it's almost hyperbole to make the point, we broke the mold. But you break the mold with premarital sex too, by the way. Some would say that this is Jesus' real position, and Matthew's exception clause has some uniquely Jewish explanations. But then to me, 1 Corinthians 7 makes no sense when Paul expands divorce theology. So here's where I land on this, and I hope I'm right. And I'm not sure I am. I believe God has been consistent all along. I don't believe there's progressive revelation going on here. I believe divorce theology in the Old Testament is reaffirmed in the New Testament. That Exodus 21 establishes divorce for neglect or abandonment. And that that is reaffirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians. And that Deuteronomy establishes divorce very clearly when adultery's been discovered, that's affirmed by Jesus. Because but also, based on this verse, all divorce and remarriage breaks the one flesh ideal. But it's an extremely difficult ethical subject because of these passages that don't seem to all coordinate. A few applications. We need to get God's word right. Can you imagine the pain that is caused by the church, by Christians, by institutions, if we have been more restrictive than God in this issue? Because I remember growing up in a church, and if you were a woman, and you were in an abusive relationship of some sort, but you couldn't prove that your husband had cheated on you, I'm not sure you wanted advice from an evangelical pastor. Because the advice was pretty much, hang in there. You don't have a right to leave. And I'm ashamed to say that. God always had a plan to protect women more than that. And we abused his word. And made people stay in relationships that weren't even safe. by being more restrictive than God. Now, I could get to heaven and find out I'm wrong on this and have to spend some time in the timeout box. In heaven. And I'm okay with that. But I've always said, people, we need to go as far as the Bible and no farther. That's the key. We don't have an erasable Bible. We need to be as conservative as God. But if we try to go a lot further, we're just legalists and we're making stuff up and we might as well be the Hillelites. This is God's word. We figure it out as best we can. We land on it. We land all the way on it and not farther. That's our job. If we screw it up, we'll find out in heaven. But that's our job. We don't take pieces out of it because they fit in the culture a little better, as some of you want to do really hard. So I get in conversations with you about it. We go as far as God. We don't go farther. Second, And at a minimum here, by the way, we need to back off of an overly confident posture. All right? I'm admitting I may be wrong here. But there are a lot of people running around trapping people in marriages who maybe should have a little more humility about how complicated this subject is. I think we've messed up. I'm embarrassed on behalf of the church to all the people who have gone through divorce and remarriage and felt like they had to cower at a church context because of it. Second, marriage is actually doing pretty well. Have you quoted the fact, have you ever quoted the facts that about, there's a 50% divorce rate? Have you ever lamented the fact that the divorce rate was the same in the church? Researcher Shanti Fielden felt the same way until she started doing some digging behind these assumptions. She discovered that half of all marriages are not ending in divorce. As a matter of fact, according to the Census Bureau, this is probably a U.S. context, this is probably going to be similar up here. I actually wouldn't be surprised if your divorce rate is lower than the U.S. up here. 72% of those who have uh, ever been married are still married to their first spouse. 72%. Felton writes, no one knows what the average first marriage divorce rate actually is, but based on the rate of widowhood and other factors, we can estimate, that's widowhood, okay, we die sooner, we choose to, but that's another issue. (sighs) That was funny. I don't care who you are, that's funny. Thank you, Aaron. Based on the rate of widowhood and other factors, we can estimate it's probably closer to 20 to 25%. For all marriages, including second marriages, it's probably in the 31 to 35% range. So, most people, about 75%, are still in their original marriage. And you got people running around saying half of marriages end in divorce. This has a real impact on young people. We got to stop saying this stuff because it's not true. Filden's research also led her to debunk another myth. The rate of divorce is the same in the church. Here's what she found. If the person was in church last week, their divorce rate dropped by 27% overall because regular church attenders lowers the divorce rate anywhere from 25 to 50%, depending on the study you look at. People who are devout about faith do not divorce at nearly the rates. Felton concludes that the divorce rate is still too high, but she also adds this note of good news. Imagine the difference for pastors to know that they can stand on stage and tell their congregations with confidence that going to church matters for your marriage. Imagine the difference to be able to tell a struggling couple. Most people get through this, and you can too. Imagine equipping the average young person with the ability to counter the cynical statements about marriage with the solid truth that actually most marriages last a lifetime and are happy. Like Dee, incredibly happy. (laughs) Incredibly happy. The woman is giddy. She skips around the lobby. If that stat is wrong, we're sowing doubt in people's minds about whether marriage can be a good thing for them. Studies indicate that young couples are actually living together instead of marrying because of their fears of this stat, which isn't even true. So they're like, I want to live together, I want to cohabit to make sure this really can work, and cohabitation rates of split-ups are really high because you don't have marriage creating the cocoon that creates sort of safeness for their love to grow. Most marriages make it. And interestingly, couples that attend church together increase their odds a lot. Marriage is doing pretty well. Don't believe everything you hear. Statistics can be made twisted in a lot of ways. I don't know how that one ever survived scrutiny. But there are people looking at it and saying, yeah, that was never really true. Third, know what God was likely thinking. Why did God create marriage? What was he thinking? There's a deep philosophical debate. Lots of reasons. Best environment to raise children in. All sociological studies would say that even, even a lot of bad marriages are better for kids than not having two spouses, not, not in the abuse arena, but I'm saying even a lot of mari- marriages aren't perfect, but still there's so much more security and benefit to children being raised in two-parent homes. We all know that. It's a way, in light of God's moral nature, to legitimize and moralize, in a good way, our sexual outlet. I mean, God has said that sex is supposed to be between a man and a woman in marriage. It is meant to be a motivation to be married. If people want to be moral in light of their faith, marriage is the opportunity. It's meant to be a motivator for marriage. It's meant to work that way. When it ceases to work that way, you can have sex with anyone any you've got a problem. But if you're gonna honor God's word, marriage is to be the place where sexuality is expressed. And sex, this is why it's important, is an earthly metaphor of Christ's love for the church. In Ephesians 5, when Paul says, Paul talks about this one flesh union, okay? And he says that's a picture of Christ in the church. He goes right to that metaphor. It's like the most intimate situation between a man and a woman. I'm gonna start turning red here. Most intimate situation between a man and a woman is meant to be a metaphor, an earthly symbol of God's love for the church. Think about that. That's how God views human sexuality. I'm going to create something in humanity so they can understand how I feel about them. And he chose intercourse for that. And in that metaphor of marriage and intimacy, we grow in love. Bonhoeffer writes about sort of this protection that marriage gives to the growth of love. I love this. While imprisoned by the Nazis in Tagal prison cell 92, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a beautiful sermon for the wedding of his niece and his friend, Eberhard Bethje. I'm sure I butchered that name. Sorry, Eberhard. Bonhoeffer never had a chance to preach the sermon. He was in prison. But this line has continued to challenge and bless many young couples. Here's what he said. Today you are young and very much in love and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't, but your marriage can sustain your love. I love that. Love doesn't sustain marriage. Marriage sustains love it sort of loves cocoon. It creates this protective layer around uh, two people who love each other, so there's room for some mistakes. It's kind of a nest. It's a safe place for love to grow. If love's just out there without marriage, then those tests can really rattle it and destroy it. But if marriage is there, and then love within that, there's a lot more room it allows love to take some pressure, to take some storms, to take some wind, some hail, some rain, and it keeps love alive in this context that God has created of commitment and sexual fidelity to each other. That's what God was thinking. Marriage is important. And finally, keep leaning toward your partner. It's the key to a lasting marriage. I just to say one thing about marriage here. This isn't a marriage sermon. This is about divorce and remarriage theology. But if I could tell you the key to a lasting marriage, I, I wouldn't look in the scriptures right now because the scriptures aren't trying to give you sort of all the all the studies that are done about what are the keys to marriage. It gives you the, it talks about creating this marriage contract that sustains love. But if you listen to what people are writing about this, John Gottman has done an incredible job on this subject. And I want to give you an illustration. So your spouse comes towards you and They want to start talking to you. And and your response is, would you please close the door? You know, with you on the other side of it, as opposed to you on this side. That's one response. Or four words that are really hard for all men in particular. Three words. Tell me more. All guys, let's practice that right now. One, one, two, three. Tell me more. Didn't it it, tasted like sand is in your teeth, didn't it? One more time. Tell me more, okay? That actually... I'm going to read the research now, and then I'll stop because you're not taking me seriously anymore. All right. Marriage researcher John Gottman has separated couples into two major groups, the masters and the disasters. The masters were still happily uh, together after six years. The disasters had either broken up or were chronically unhappy in their marriages. What makes the difference between masters and disasters... In his study, and this is an older study, Gottman carefully observed 130 couples, and he noticed that throughout the day, married partners made requests for connection. He calls them bids, B I D S, bids. For example, a husband who's a bird enthusiast might notice a goldfinch fly across the yard. He tells his wife, Look at that beautiful bird. He's not just commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response from her. Why didn't he have to use a bird watcher? Anyway, a sign of interest or support. I was a bird watcher. Hoping they'll connect however momentarily over the bird. That's why you interact with somebody. You want them to notice what you're saying and to pay attention. The wife now has a choice. She can either respond by turning towards him or turning away from her husband. Though the bird might, or the bird bid might seem minor, it can actually reveal a lot about the health of the marriage. The bird was important for the husband, and the question is whether his wife respects and recognizes that. People who turned towards their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, showing interest and support. Those who turned away responded minimally, ignoring the bid or expressed contempt, as in, well, that's stupid, or stop bothering me. These bidding interactions had profound effects on marital well-being. Couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had turned towards bids only 33% of the time. So everyone who's divorcing, it's like your wife says something to you, your husband says something, he's like, yeah, whatever. Those people don't stay together. The couples who were still together after 6 years had turned towards bids 87% of the time. 9 times out of 10 they were meeting their partners' emotional needs. The key to happy marriage according to a lot of sociologists, Gottman would be one of them would be staying engaged with each other, listening to each other, or tell me more. Well, I hope that the sermon has not been about marriage as much as God's view of divorce and marriage. I hope that as a church, you know, we used to host divorce care in one of the ministries I was in before, things like that. I hope this is a place, and I've heard words to the contrary, I hope this is a place where people whose lives are a little broken can come here and know this is home, not where we have to clean it all up and get it together before we show up. That's not the church. That's heaven. This was never heaven. The church is for people whose lives are messy just like ours, maybe in some different ways. And we need to be a place for every one of those people or we're not being the church. After I pray, when the worship team comes forward, just one of the wonderful cultural things I love about Bethany is uh, we'll have some people up here to pray with you if you have a prayer request. We'd love to see you come down and pray. If you have a prayer request for a friend, feel free to use this for that, but just want to make that available during our last worship set as well. God, thank you for your word. God, at my greatest concern, any time I'm up here is whether or not I'm representing you accurately, and I hope I have, but there's so much disagreement on this. But I don't see a Bible or a New Testament where we're singling out a group of people as though there's something they can't recover from. And, and I pray that we would have a correct view of this, that we would recognize the imperfection of our lives and relationships and where that leaves some people, and that we would be gracious, as gracious as you are, in allowing people to go on and move forward in their lives where, where I believe you have allowed them to. So in that sense, may we be like you,